everybody. Welcome back to Read It and Weep, the podcast about the worst current fiction in video or bookatory form. We are uh, coming at you today to talk about the second third of Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. Let me introduce you really quick, my friends who are working on this podcast with me. First, uh, his soft, enigmatic voice combined with his new body, his wealth, and his refusal to speak about his mysterious past, which always serves as catnip for the women he met. Uh, they gave themselves willingly, and he satisfied all of them, from fashion models visiting in his island on a photo shoot to New Bile American College girls on vacation to the lonely wives of his neighbors to the occasional young man. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Chris. Welcome, Chris. Yes. Steroids made my voice into a whisper. <laughs> is that your, when he was on the Greek Islands voice? And my head is much bigger than it originally was, so. <laughs> yeah. Life is good. And uh, also with us today, he has an eidetic memory, and he remembers every phone number he has ever called. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Ezra. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you can now throw my phone away, because clearly that <laughs> wouldn't come in handy ever. And of course, uh, I'm your host. I lost half of my voice box to throat cancer, and yet I still smoke anytime it's menacing. My name is Al. Hey, Al. Hey, Al. Let's go. So the, the first thing we always like to do on the podcast is a compliment sandwich. It's also the last thing we like to do on every podcast. So let's begin this week our discussion about the Lost Symbol Part 2 with a compliment from anybody who would like to go first. I got one. Please. Um, there was actually a, a pretty fun uh, shout-out that I liked. Um, and uh, here's a quote. Uh, it was uh, Robert Langdon you know, getting ordered around by Catherine. He said, uh, Feeling like the novice sous chef taking orders from Daniel Balud. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Um, which I liked a lot. The, the, you know, the shout out to Daniel Balud, a, a very uh, amazing chef. Um, I, I did think it was a little silly, though, that somehow they thought it was possible that a sous chef could you know, raise the ranks right, uh, um, in Daniel Balud's kitchen and still not know what he's doing. Like, Balud would not stand for that. <laughs> yeah, it's true that... Dan Brown may not know exactly what a sous chef does because the sous chef <laughs> runs the kitchen. I mean, like, right? I, I I disagree. If there's one thing that Dan Brown is going to do, it's going to have to look up the exact encyclopedia <laughs> definition of a sous chef. Yep. And I'm surprised he didn't take the time to mention it. Actually, there. we probably just don't know what a sous chef really is, right? That's yeah. a, there's a Masonic uh, <laughs> version of a sous chef. Exactly. No. We talked about last week about how it seemed like there was a lot of product placement in the book. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you think this was a Daniel Balud product placement? <laughs> do you think he paid for that shout-out? <laughs> I think so. I'm going um, to say definitely. I mean, yeah. like, it seems like every once in a while, like every few chapters, he needs to throw in a brand name or something specific so that there's that dose of realism, dose that it's a real yeah. world with brand names in it. And it's totally, this is totally that. He just kind of drops it in and, you know, it, it's neither here nor there. We should, we should point out also that it, though it doesn't seem that like uh, every few chapters uh, would be that much, but there are two chapters on every page. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so for for my compliment, there is a there the CIA field team gets more involved in this part of the book than in the first part. Right. And what that the the benefit of that the the beautiful part about that is that he, they bring with them all kinds of ridiculous technology that he in the CIA probably doesn't have, uh, including like thermal these thermal imaging goggles. Yeah, that was sweet. That that works so well they can see a handprint from 10 minutes ago on a wooden banister and say he went up these stairs and some other things. But my favorite 
my favorite part, my favorite bit of technology is they have an explosive that is basically a piece of C4 that's been rolled out really flat that you put in a door to and explode it to blow the door hinges off. Damn it, that and was going to be my compliment. <laughs> was it really? No. They they call it they call it key four, and my compliment is not only that that's a very clever creation, but I love puns. I think that one might be real. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was such thing as key four, but uh, whether or not there is, that was a clever bit of naming. So whether this compliment actually goes to Dan Brown or to the person who invented key four, <laughs> I love that name for a, that product. Um, I uh, let's see. I think something else to note that that thermal thing. Um, that would totally be able to know when people farted. <laughs> You'd see clouds of things. Oh, that's you great. totally would. There's another great technology which I like, which is the non-lethal incapacitant. That was oh sick. yeah, where he he shoots this like, um, what he call, they refer to it as gooey polyurethane, but they basically shoot like a Nickelodeon product <laughs> of slime at him. And the product is built such that as soon as it touches a criminal, could be any criminal, <laughs> anytime it touches a criminal, it instantly hardens. So they like shoot him with goo, and then it hardens, and he's he's touched down. Anyway, yeah, they got uh, slammed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh. Uh, Chris, what what is your actual compliment? Well, um, my original compliment was going to be another aspect of Key Four, but moving on, um, I I also I I really appreciate. The uh, the minutia, the level of minutia to which Dan Brown does his research. Um, so there's this one point when Moloch, the bad guy, is you know he's they're t- telling the process story of how he became this uh, you know kind of fanatical freakazoid, and he goes <laughs> to the New York Public Library to look up books about the occult and tattoos, and it is it is expressed that the New York Library carries 51 books about. <laughs> Tattooing, <laughs> and I normally wouldn't care how many books there were, but since Dan Brown went through the trouble of calling the New York Public Library and being like, uh, "How many books do you have?" Good, okay, and typing that out, you know, it's just it it makes it that much more, um, you know, uh, real and textured. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> All right, well, let's let's get into the uh, the juice of the book. Chris, would you like to take us through what happened in section two? Well, yeah. So we uh, we pick up back with uh, you know Robert Langdon, and and he is just you know when we when we left him, he had just been busted out of that situation in the sub basement of the Capitol building with the CIA CIA director and the chief of Capitol police by the uh, Morgan Freeman esque architect <laughs> of the Capitol, and he's like. You know, knocks them out, and he's like, run, and they're running, and, you know, he's going to hide Robert Langdon. Meanwhile, uh, Catherine Solomon, uh, whose brother is being held captive by the main bad guy, and who's, uh, you know, her brother's hand got cut off, and, you know, that's what started this whole thing. Um, she is in her lab at the Smithsonian um, Support Center, or something, basically secret bullshit lab, um, and they, uh, and the bad guy is, um, you know, chasing her through the dark. And so, uh, you know, in, in this part, she gets away from him in a kind of spectacular manner. And uh, she uh, she goes and finds Robert Langdon at the Library of Congress, where he and Morgan Freeman are uh, hanging out, um, just kind of waiting around and trying to avoid the CIA. Meanwhile, there's a field t- team chasing down Robert Langdon because he's got this pyramid 
of the, the, the Masonic Pyramid, the Great Masonic Pyramid that will unlock the secrets of the world. And it's uh, got a lot of magic and puzzles to it. And so Catherine meets them and they have to run away from the CIA and they're still running away from the CIA and they, they – uh, they get above ground. They take a taxi. Oh, no, the CIA knows about the taxi. Let's fool them. And they go to the National Cathedral because another large set piece exists in the Capitol and they have to visit it. Um, <laughs> and they get another like thing unlocked about the pyramid and they're still hiding from the CIA. We also get a long bit of uh, flashback about the origin story of Malak, the bad guy. Yeah. Um, which was kind of neither here nor there. I mean, I just don't... <laughs> I mean, like, yes, it took up five to eight tiny chapters, but it didn't really do anything for me. <laughs> well, actually, I what I loved about the, the explanation of Moloch's past is that essentially he becomes evil out of boredom. <laughs> yes. His origin story is like he has infinite amount of money, so he moves to the most beautiful island in the world, works out, does a bunch of steroids, is... You know, reads a lot of books, has, becomes perfect. Has sex with like everyone, everyone, including including boys, as uh, the introduction mentioned. Uh, he yeah, and he just becomes perfect at sex and perfect at reading, and he knows everything, and he's glorious. And then that bores him, and he's like, "There's got to be something more in my life." And then he finds out about this Masonic pyramid, and is like, "Well, that's something. I'll chase that for the rest of my life." And then he goes into the, it becomes evil, but it's basically he's evil just because there's nothing better to do. Um, the guy could have just as easily taken up checkers or polo or something. He just there were no hobbies that appealed to him except killing people for a pyramid. <laughs> I mean, so the the chase scene continues, I guess, Chris. After what you just described, which is they uh, the CIA gets separated from from Langton and Catherine. Yes, and Langton and Catherine go off to the house of Moloch, where they believe Peter has been. Uh, hurt but left alive so they go to his house and it turns out Moloch is actually still there and he proceeds to beat the crap out of all of them and torture them to try to get information he also he kills a CIA agent with a screwdriver which was very exciting and uh, and then he ties Catherine up with like razor wire and then he and he puts he puts uh, Robert Langdon in a box with that where he's standing upright and it slowly fills with water right there was actually a, a really fun um I don't know, fun. I, I enjoyed it, though. There's a good kind of, like, hangover moment um, where Langdon's, uh, Langdon's coming to when he's regaining consciousness. Um, and he's, he's, like, naked in, uh, naked in this box. Um, and uh, he's like... All right, I'll, I'll just read it. Um, am I naked? Puzzled, he ran his, clo- his hands over his body. Where the hell are my clothes? Um, in the darkness, the cobwebs began to lift, and Langdon saw flashes of memory. Frightening snapshots. A dead CIA agent. The face of a tattooed beast. Langdon's head smashed into the floor. The images came faster, and now he recalled the sickening image of Catherine Sullivan bound and gagged on the dining room floor. My god! <laughs> um, which is kind of fun, just like the, what did I get up to last night kind of moment, you know? Where he's sort of like, <laughs> back, you know, like, oh right, there was some bondage and some death. Oh, oh no, we we gotta we gotta roll her up in a carpet or something. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> well, he also when he first starts to wake up, the first thing he's like he tries to sit up. Yeah. His, his first instinct hits his head because he's in a box. But his first reaction instead of oh my god I'm in a box, he's like oh no the ceiling is very low in this room, <laughs> which is a pretty good reaction. I mean, 
that's the first thing I would think if there was something if I was laying down and there was something six inches above my head. Yeah, that, that, oh, that what a low. Weird. Who would who would who would build a room this tiny? Who would build such a room? How did I walk into this room? It's kind of it's, it's a fun thing. It's a, the truth now dawned on him. Robert Langdon was not in a room at all. I'm in a box. <laughs> <laughs> he knew that the origin of box, ancient Sumerian. <laughs> <laughs> That sort of catches us up then on on what's happened in this book, and uh, plot wise, that sort of covers all of it. But really, all of that plot, like the, the the stuff that's actual plot, the stuff that's not tangent based, could fit in two of even his super small chapters. So it's like three action scenes, a couple of bits of key information, and the rest is those tangents we were complaining about last week. Oh my god. <laughs> um. The most egregious, of course, being Moloch's origin story. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was about to say. Um, so we, we talk about uh, Moloch's origin, right? And we, we learn that he's uh, actually castrated himself. Um, yes. That... <laughs> and, uh, and let me just let me go, go through what are some of, the, some of the consequences of castration and some things that are not consequences of castration. <laughs> um, so one thing that is consequence of castration is that you, you might get depressed. Um, and that um, you also might have a more serene outlook on life. Uh, just, just to be clear, are you reading the this is, this is Wikipedia's Wikipedia, yeah. symptoms of castration? Or, it's not really a symptom, because... <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> but more, but uh, medical consequences, yeah. If you sure, have yeah, these so symptoms, contact the might doctor have been immediately. <laughs> 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 Something that can happen is that your body strength and muscle mass can decrease. Um what I always knew that's where my power center was. Right. <laughs> but what doesn't happen is you actually don't develop um, an evil obsession with uh, the nation. That's actually not one of the things. You don't become stronger or uh, or bigger or eviler. You, uh, you just might get a little sad or, or a little mellow. Um, sometimes you can get fat also. So uh, none of which have happened to him. I've yeah, heard, right? I've heard that your your junk gets huge though. I didn't know that. Yeah. But less useful? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of ironic. Just a windsock? <laughs> Basically a windsock. That's right. I think he got eviler after the castration. Because um, <laughs> when he kills uh, Solomon, Ma- Mama Solomon, whatever her name was, yeah. uh, uh, when, when he kills her, it actually was accidental. So he was like, oh shit, I killed her? Because he didn't know that actually. He was not, it was not his goal. Right. Well, it, we, we got to remember with him too though that the first thing he did that let him live this life of luxury in the islands of Greece was uh, that he did kill baby Solomon. Baby Solomon was kind of a dick, though. So... <laughs> right? Yeah. That's true, but that was not why he was killed. He was killed because he was rich. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and he could get out of jail because of that. Yeah, so the setup is that um, Peter Solomon's son, Zach, is is like in jail because he had his share of the family fortune. that name? I'm so impressed. Yeah, he, he has the family fortune, a bit of it, and he just goes and he doesn't care about going to college or anything else. He just wants to have fun, do drugs, and be in Europe having sex all the time. So eventually he winds up in Turkish prison because... That's you what know, happens. That's what happens. That's what happens, it's, yeah. It's, it's go big or go to Turkish prison. So, you know, <laughs> this whole book is really just song. an anti-drug message. It was like, if you like drugs, you're going to end up in a Turkish prison where you'll be beaten to death. Which, I mean, Turkish prison is a you know, really nasty place to be. But um, his dad comes to, to bust him out, right? And then the, the warden's like, you know, you could uh, 
you could bribe me, man, and he'd be out of here. <laughs> um, you, you look like exactly Scott that Funny. Level of subtlety. Yeah, it, it was like it wasn't even at first. He like tried to suggest, and Peter Solomon's like, "What? What? What is that? I don't get it." I don't get it. And he's like, "Listen, you're a man of means. I'm sure you could pay the right people, and he could be out of here in a week." Oh, I, I, I don't know. You could pay me tonight, and I'd pay the bill. <laughs> be out of here tonight. Bribe me. <laughs> I will be bribed. <laughs> right, nope. and Peter Solomon, because he's supposed to be this pillar of integrity and wisdom, decides, no, I'm not going to save my son from Turkish prison. I'm going to work through the pro- proper channels and wait for a Turkish bureaucracy to get their act together. <laughs> because I don't. I want to teach my son that he can't run away from his mistakes, and instead, sometimes his mistakes involve being beaten to death with a hose. Which is silly, because I mean, like, you really shouldn't rely on the Turks, like, post the Ottoman Empire era. You know, it's like they're not gonna, they're not gonna rise again. Uh, yeah, once once the are. elephant ca- cavalry goes away. Yeah, it's like the line in Princess Bride: "They never mess with mess with a." Sicilian when death is yeah. on the line. It's the same thing they say is never mess with a Turk when bureaucracy is on the line. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody says that. It's very common. Right. So Moloch has a, has a line when he when he sees uh, Peter Solomon, Solomon later. He said, um, I didn't kill your son. You killed your son by not bailing him out. But um, Moloch pretty much killed his son. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, but can't we say we both killed him? Can't we, yeah. we both contributed to this problem. I'm gonna say uh, objectively, this would not uh, convince a jury of your uh, of of castrated peers. <laughs> Guys who beat people to death don't kill people. Their fathers who don't buy off Turkish prison guards kill people. <laughs> Their fathers who allow them to be near people to beat people to death yeah. kill people. <laughs> and it's actually really funny that he denies having killed them because his other fun character trait is he constantly likes to pop up into the frame and go, I killed somebody close to you, and then disappear. <laughs> there, there's a part really later, like, late on where he's, like, torture, he's, where he's torturing uh, um, uh, Langdon in the in the water box, and and Catherine goes, oh my god, he'll drown, and she, and, and then and then Moloch says, yes, drowning is a terrible way to die. Ask your assistant, Trisha, who I drowned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like the depth of his character really revolves, uh, or I mean, it hovers around the snidely whiplash area where, you know, from Rocky and Bullwinkle, where he's just like, oh, I'm bad. <laughs> and like, oh, I'm so bad. And has to tell him. Yeah, no, I, just, uh, I think there's probably a moment where, like, Catherine's like, oh, oh I got some popcorn stuck in my tooth. And, he, and like, Malik's like, yes, having popcorn stuck in your teeth is a terrible way to go. Just ask your doorman who I killed with a popcorn stuck in his tooth. <laughs> Moloch would be su- is such a great uh, adversary if you're the CIA and you have hidden wiretaps. <laughs> he would because you know, give him five minutes and he's going to confess to a murder. Yeah. He is not sneaky at all about the way he describes things. I, I want to talk about how the CIA is uh, neither central nor intelligent nor an agency in this book. <laughs> um, <laughs> Agent Simpkins, Special Agent Simpkins, um, is trying to figure out when the next blue line train is coming in to the uh, to the to this metro station, and he's like, "When is the next blue line train?" And she goes, "It's every 11 minutes." And he's like, <laughs> "Well, how long since the last one?" And she goes, "I don't know, five six minutes." And then there's a line, Special Agent Simpkins did the math. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've got five or six minutes. <laughs> yeah. 
I think we have to be clear on this, though, that this might be something that's peculiar to Agent Simpkins, because <laughs> the leader of the operation, uh, Sato, yeah, she's she's good at stuff. I mean, she's got a she's got analysts on the phone on speed dial. Right, she can call and get any question answered, um, at least any question that Google Maps can solve for you. And uh, <laughs> but, but Simpkins Simpkins is kind of like the Mr. Magoo of the CIA. <laughs> in this one moment, um, so one of his fellow agents uh, just got stabbed in the neck. With a <laughs> screwdriver. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by uh, by Moloch. And uh, there's an exchange. Any word from Agent Hartman in Calorama Heights? Uh, no, ma'am. Uh, you asked him to phone you directly. Uh, well, he hasn't. Odd, some kind of thought, checking his watch. He's overdue. And, like, like not worried or anything. Just like, <laughs> huh, well, that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> what a strange coincidence. I'm sure he's not dead in somebody's house. <laughs> Definitely doesn't have a screwdriver on his neck. Also, the screwdriver. Where did that come from? He's the the epitome of all evil. He doesn't have a gun in the house? Moloch's bored. That's like that's the thing. He's like, well, I guess I haven't killed someone with a screwdriver in the neck yet. <laughs> he has this really elaborate like tripwire torture system set up, but he doesn't have a gun just in case someone else shows up. But he does have a screwdriver like on a quick release on his belt. <laughs> yeah. He just happened to be holding a screwdriver when that guy came in. How is that the bet? You've got knives. Surely the man cooks for himself. No, it, it's a, it's like a Derringer uh, size uh, uh, screwdriver. Just like it's really quick release and very small. <laughs> he's actually he's actually wearing it on a on, yeah. on a sidearm. It's, it's a screwdriver. <laughs> Hogs leg screwdriver. <laughs> Is it Phillips? <laughs> Uh, Ez, yeah. when we first talked this morning, you were really fired up to do, have this podcast. Is this an appropriate time for you to tell us why? Yeah, I think it is. Um, so last week, I was um, I was kind of you know dumping on uh, on this book, but I think I actually I might have to recant a lot of my statements because it has I think the most beautiful passage that I probably ever. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, it, did bold... I just skim past this? How did I miss this? Uh, well, I think we actually might have gotten a different version uh, of the book. Uh, you oh. see, mine has um, musical accompaniment at some points. Oh, oh interesting. Really? Yeah, it really adds a lot uh, that you wouldn't um, like, that you wouldn't expect, and it just—it was probably the most beautiful thing I've ever read. So, it, if if we want to listen to that now, you can share. I would. I would love to. I can't wait. Oh, I guess I should I should probably preface a little bit for for everyone else um what what this part is coming so um uh so Langdon and Catherine have um have found a a helpful blind man um and uh, <laughs> and the helpful blind man is now going to assist um assist Langdon in unlocking the secrets of uh of the pyramid and the uh, the small box the pyramid came in so. Professor Langdon, Galloway said, reaching out across his desk. Take my hand, if you will. Robert Langdon felt uncertain <laughs> and stared across at Dean Galloway's outstretched palm. Are we going to pray? Politely, Langdon reached out and placed his right hand in the Dean's withered hand. The old man grasped it firmly, but did not begin to pray. Instead, he found Langdon's index finger and guided it downward into the stone box that had once housed the golden castle. Your eyes have blinded you, the dean said, 
<laughs> if you saw with your fingertips as I do, you would realize this box has something left to teach you. Dutifully, Langdon worked his fingertip around the inside of the box, but he felt nothing. The inside was perfectly smooth. Keep looking, Galloway prompted. Finally, Langdon's fingertip felt something. A tiny raised circle, a minuscule dot in the center of the base of the box. He removed his hand and peered inside. The little circle was virtually invisible to the naked eye. Oh my god. <laughs> You know, it's no wonder to me that Ezra always thinks there's sex jokes when there aren't sex jokes that we hear, because <laughs> this is the audiobook that Ezra's listening to. <laughs> you know, I don't know why. Oh my god. That was, that was fucking brilliant, Ezra. Are we praying? No, we're not praying. Slowly he guides his index. <laughs> Yeah, well, so so really the moral of the story for Dan Brown <laughs> is uh, don't forget about the G-spot. It's important on men <laughs> and women. Yeah. All right, guys, here's what I want you to do. We are going to now, and I would like us to do this with more books in the future, but I think it's especially appropriate with this one, that I would like you to make predictions about what's going to happen in the next section. So I have a list of questions, and I want you guys to decide, and I'm going to record your answers. And you have four. You have, your options are definitely going to happen, might happen, probably not going to happen, there's no way that'll happen, and Dan Brown hasn't made me care about this. <laughs> I know my answers. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with something easy. Do you think Peter is actually alive? I'm going to say definitely. I'm going to say highly likely. Because there's not really an interesting reveal. Like the, I think Dan Brown usually, if he's gonna kill someone, we know that he's gonna that they're dead, right? It's like Dan Brown likes the shock of someone dying, so I, I don't think it'll be like a a long wait for someone to actually die. I don't really think there's a point to, to string us along like that. Yeah. Also, Excellent. I'm gonna change my answer from likely to Dan Brown has not made me care about this. <laughs> because Peter Solomon, if is the most one-dimensional character in this book, which says a lot. <laughs> he's rich. He's he is driven to his morale, his Masonic morality to the point of you know uh, ignoring other things, and he's generally a good guy. And I just I don't know I I I have not cared about him since the get go. So, in all fairness, he's the most one dimensional character who's not actually in this book. That's I mean fair. We've seen way more of his severed hand than we have of him at all. <laughs> That's true. We did get some flashbacks, you know, but... I mean, actually, his severed hand was pretty well done. I mean, we got to see it from two different angles, so that might be two-dimensional. <laughs> <laughs> the hand is at least two-dimensional. So, I mean, like, he has to at least be, like, a 1.2-dimensional if, you know, his hand is more than one dimension. All right, so question number two. Is there actually a portal at the Franklin Square address? Uh, I'm going to say Unlikely. Unlikely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say likely because it depends on what you think of as a portal. Um, good point. Because uh, it could just be a symbol of something, you know? It could be a metaphorical portal. Uh, okay, number question number three. Will Langdon finally stop flirting and hook up with, with Catherine? Definitely. Very unlikely. <laughs> really? Oh, oh yeah. I, I do not want to I, – I can't – at this point, picture Dan Brown writing a scene of them kissing um, that, that would make me not want to kill myself. And so just hopefully, 
Um, I'm saying not likely. I think it's going to be like High School Musical, where you know they they are almost going to kiss and gets interrupted, and then there's the credits. So did, I'm sorry. <laughs> did, did you did you not? You know, what happened to the the box scene that we just did? All right, that yeah. this is yeah. going to happen. You know, I, interesting. So Megan has also read both this and Angels of Demons, and she said that each of the books has some creepy sexual thing, <laughs> some some bits of, of overly sexual in some sort of an interesting or gross way, which we have not seen any of this far. Which so Dude, cut off his own balls. What the hell? That is definitely not sex. It's <laughs> sex bits. The dude, the dude cut off his balls. Why? Because he was bored with having sex. Yeah, so we didn't get that's a weird it. quirk. <laughs> <laughs> Question number four. Is the CIA on the side of good? Yes. Definitely, probably. Uh, definitely. I'm gonna go with definitely. We haven't learned a lot about this yet, but I mean, Sato whispered that thing to Bellamy, um, in the botanical gardens that made him rethink everything. And also, I mean, the CIA, uh, you know, they're an upstanding group that would never, you know, do anything wrong. So. <laughs> I mean, oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's. I feel like definitely right. We gotta trust them. I'll tell you, when I first thought of this question, I thought. Probably not. My original thinking was like we'd. It just it seemed too weird that the that it was this this sub CIA branch that Sato wasn't telling anybody what was going on. Like she just it just seemed like the CIA might be in on this in a bad way. But now given the thing that she said to the architect, I think you're probably right. I think they probably they probably are on the side of good. Also, I think the CIA would be rather upset if uh, they were portrayed badly in this book. That's a good point. Um, <laughs> question number five on the prediction quiz. Will Moloch's testicles reappear and punish him? Oh, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, we'll get some probably, not his testicles, but I think probably Bull's testicles will be grafted onto it. <laughs> Somebody else's testicles will show up. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're going to go with no, but maybe some something else. I'm going to put you down for a probably not. Chris, what do you think? Oh, I'm going to go with more likely than not. Yeah, more likely than not. <laughs> I am I am going to go... The problem is with my options, I don't think it's either likely or unlikely, but Dan Brown has definitely made me care about this one thing. So <laughs> I, can't, I can't say otherwise. I'm going to go with uh, with probably. Um, little known fact, uh, or maybe very obvious fact, uh, about uh, getting your testicles removed from Wikipedia, <laughs> um, does cure testicular cancer. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, speaking of uh, of Moloch, also, do do you think Moloch is going to get the punishment that he deserves? What does he deserve? That's the bonus question. I haven't gotten there yet. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm no. Gonna, I'm gonna say. Like, is he, is he going to be punished? Like the other, the, I guess the other option is he like disappears into a frozen river again. Oh, I, I do think he's going to be punished. Yes. Okay. I agree with that. But and that, definitely, that's a definitely, definitely, definitely. That's that's a definitely on this one. But it's not going to be what he deserves. Oh, okay. Uh, well, what does he deserve? What, 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 I guess uh, creatively, what is a good punishment for Moloch? Um, I'm going to guess. Uh, Aside from forcibly reattaching his. That was totally no, and then came back <laughs> on a, um, on an island, right, and making him have sex with lots of uh, beautiful <laughs> women and boys, because that's apparently what makes him go crazy. For, <laughs> forcing him to be another rich Grecian playboy. Yeah. You can't I'm gonna, that shit. I'm going to say he's going to be a muscle graft donor. <laughs> and he's just going to, um, you know, he's going to slowly whittle away until he's a frail little a whip of a lad. And he'll uh, he'll be forced to push around a cart 
selling cookies at the fair. And that's, <laughs> that's what he'll be. And his tattoos will be all muddled. Um, actually, I, I, I'm going to revise my statement of what his punishment should be. Go ahead. Um, he actually, I'm going to say he actually will get the, the truth, uh, like the, all the Mace, uh, Masonic secrets. But the catch would be they're all written by Dan Brown. <laughs> so the ancient mysteries. Yeah, it's, it's like, oh, I can't get through this. I'm just, uh, <laughs> just gonna drown myself in my little box. <laughs> All right. Uh, question number seven. Uh, do you think Langdon will finally stop just flirting and hook up with Sato? <laughs> uh, does she have a hole in her voice box? <laughs> she might. Yeah, I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say then might. Then yeah. Yeah, Chris, maybe. Uh, I'm gonna say probably not because. Dan Brown is not going to fulfill any of my comedy desires in this book. <laughs> Dan Brown fulfilled one of my comedy desires actually in this book. So there's one part where um, where, where Catherine Solomon uh, is running around near a library, and she sees a homeless guy, and oh, yeah. she yells at him, "Do you have a phone?" And he responds, "Lady, I don't have a left shoe." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to I don't want to be annoying here, but it's definitely not the question she asked <laughs> no that's true that was that was kind of avoiding the question okay question eight and i want you to remember i wrote this before we talked had this conversation will agent simpkins finally succeed at something <laughs> yes because he'll try to fail <laughs> he'll take, uh, he'll oh re- my god no that's it psychology life that's it all right the cia is good but agent simpkins is a double agent he's sandbagging it Oh. <laughs> that's a great idea my answer is yes definitely and if it's successfully collecting his unemployment <laughs> he is he is gonna get canned he is gonna walk the spanish main man right off <laughs> i i'm i'm thinking probably not he my guess is that he's going to try really hard to not die totally blow it and there'll be no more opportunity <laughs> Question number nine. Will Langdon finally stop just flirting and hook up with Agent Simpkins? <laughs> I, I don't think that um, the Simpkins will exactly understand what's happening. <laughs> so you're going to go with probably not. I mean, I think he'll, he'll try, but I just think Simpkins is, is really going to mess this one up. He's, he's going to shoot himself in the foot, literally. <laughs> Chris? Um, I'm, uh, I'm going to go with less likely than not. Um, just because, you know, uh, is the mainstream hardcover book buying audience really going to be up for that? I, I don't think so. I think it is. We've already had two gay scenes. I mean, isn't, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, going for three is, is a little bit, uh, brassy. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go that probably not going to happen just like you both have. But my reasoning is because they are going to try and Simpkins is just going to continually miss. <laughs> Terrible aim. Uh, uh, question number ten: Will we have to suffer through any more Moloch flashbacks? Uh, Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna go with Chris here. I, I think there's no way we're gonna avoid it. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm afraid that's true. Uh, I really hope, actually, though, that um, somehow Mama Solomon and Zach are actually both alive, uh-huh. and it's all just the three of them have been working together to uh, yeah to get all the Masonic um. Yeah, symbols or, and secrets. Or, or what if Peter Solomon dies, and then at the end, you know, there's some music playing, and Robert Langdon has his arm around Catherine, and then they appear like the end of Return of the Jedi as like ghost forms. 
you know? Oh, yeah. that is they nice. Give, yeah, they give their little, like, nod, being like, yeah, that's right. You hit that. And then, and then like, a bunch of Satos, like, dance all together? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, it is time for the second half of our compliment sandwich. I'm going to add a nice uh, pickle uh, and even... potato salad on the side later. But first, the compliments. Ezra, I would like you to begin because you sighed. Okay. Oh, no, I got one. I got one. I'm oh, good. Um, I actually really liked uh, the escape plan they had from the uh, from the Library of Congress uh, stacks. Oh, yes, what was yes. That? What was that plan again? For... There's a whole bunch of conveyor belts uh, that move through the entire Library of Congress because the Library of Congress is so big. And I don't really know how books get places, but maybe it's automated. Um, and so what we do is, you know, you drop a book on the stack, and uh, then it goes someplace where the person actually wants to read it. Um, and the cool thing is that just the conveyor belts are, belts are always going. And so um, the Morgan Freeman places um, Robert Langdon and uh, and smart, uh, sexy older woman uh, Catherine on these conveyor belts, which is like just barely enough for them to fit through, and just takes them all the way out. And it is so it's like their plan is basically to be like, like um, like the log ride in Disneyland. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a library book flume. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a down. splash at the end. Yeah. <laughs> There's a picture. They get to like. Yeah, and the, yeah, and then they charge you 15 bucks for the picture of you screaming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is anyway, fun. Like uh, my my comment is uh, in the the very recent parts when they go to the torture room in Moloch's house. So Moloch is like, he's captured these people and he's like, all right, it's time to get information out of them. And he presses on the side of his painting and this huge painting swivels as if on a central pivot and it reveals a mysterious hallway, secret passage, which is so much fun. And then also the secret passage area and the secret basement and on the whole rest of the house back there is heavily padded and soundproof. So although he may be using it as a torture facility, it also could be a sex dungeon. Um, <laughs> I mean, even if even if the point is to, to torture people, I love rotating paintings and secret passageways. It's so much fun. Yeah, it's like a mystery house. I love it. So when they're in the uh, National Cathedral, they have this pyramid. And it, the box, as, as we've already kind of hinted at, can open up into this cross thing if you push, if you have the nub just right and you have the ring and you can tilt it. You push on the box's G-spot. You push on the box's G-spot with the <laughs> ring, it kind of... Yeah, it unfolds like a beautiful, oh, delicate flower. With a ring on. Oh. Yeah, it was. So in order to do this, uh, there's this phrase, all will be revealed at the 33rd degree. So uh, Robert Robert Langdon has to put the ring in the box until it just like clicks in, and he, and he turns it 10 degrees, 20 degrees, 30 degrees, 33 degrees, and then everything happens. And I love that despite Robert Langdon's bumbling nature – He's very, very precise as to, uh, you know, how to <laughs> he has turn some. Very fine motor control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some people have a built-in compass. They always, they never get lost. Robert Langdon, built-in protractor. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> All right, uh, thank you everybody for joining us this week. Uh, we are still reading weep. We are still awesome. We're uh, we're going to be finishing. The Lost Symbol this week, so definitely uh, if you're reading along, finish it up and be ready. And if you're not reading along, awesome. <laughs> smart, you're smarter than us. Consider this your digital pat on the back. Oh, can we have a shout out actually to it? We had uh, 
two fan letters yes this week so thank you so much to to ann from somewhere in europe hey and uh to uh, to andy also um and and i guess from earlier to to my mom um <laughs> <laughs> fan letters thank you all uh, we might say your name uh on the podcast if you send us a letter yeah actually I, since we're talking about that i want to mention we also got uh in one of our itunes reviews uh somebody mentioned the compliment sandwich and referred to us as being very fair Hey. The compliments, which, I mean, obviously we're screwing this up since the. I don't think the compliments are supposed to be in equal measure to the rest of the book <laughs> we talk about. But, uh, yeah, we, we love uh, fan mail. We love iTunes reviews. We love it all. So, yeah. Uh, in that particular you, case, I want to send the shout out to Love for Color Guard. Thank you. Yeah, and if you have, you know, if you have feedback, good or bad, just set it in. So. We love to hear it. Excellent. So uh, with that, it, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for being here, Chris. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Can you do your Moloch voice? Which one? Do you, do you want do you want Andros or do you want Moloch? <laughs> same one that you did. Same one you. Yeah, Andros. Give me Andros again. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thank you, Ezra Langdon. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Alex, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody, and really quick, just want to let you know, uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, we're trying a couple of new things this week uh, on top of running 50% longer than usual. We're, we've also got a new way you can contact us. So you can still use the email address, podcast at readweep.com, but now you can also send us a voicemail. Just give us a call, 509-588-1280, and leave us a message, and we may use your call on the air. But positive, negative feedback, we love to hear it all. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll talk to you soon.